As you uh, find your seat, a bulletin is going to be vitally important to the study of God's Word today. We conclude our series in the book of Proverbs, and as has been our custom throughout the book of Proverbs, we are taking a topical approach to the book of Proverbs, looking at the different topics that Proverbs discusses. And in closing this week, we're going to be looking at the emotion of anger. Now, before we jump into this, let me just say this, and this is something that you can study on your own and, and, and look at that. But one of the things that, is, that has intrigued me as I've looked at the different topics of Proverbs is the relationship of Proverbs to the seven deadly sins. And as is the case this morning, we're going to be looking at the third deadly sin, which is anger. But it's fascinating to me that before the seven deadly sins came to be about, which came about in about 400 AD, um, that Proverbs was already speaking about it f- before that. And so there's an interesting connection, understandably so, between the seven deadly sins. And so if if you want to study them further, it's just a fascinating thing to study, the the relationship between Proverbs and the seven deadly sins. So anyway, just something for you to think about, chew on if if you're interested. But again, we're looking at anger this morning. So if you have before you your bulletin, or if you have a Bible, I'm just going to be jumping around to different verses that discuss anger in the book of Proverbs. Hear now the reading of God's word. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Proverbs 29, 22. Finally, Proverbs 15, 11, or 15, 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, But a harsh word stirs up anger. And I want to close this by giving you the words of Jesus following the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 14, 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Perhaps one of Jesus' most profound statements came from the Sermon on the Mount when he said this. You have heard it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. These are beautiful words. But if we're honest with ourselves, these words are incredibly difficult to follow. Martin Luther King Jr. said in his book, Strength to Love, It is easy to love those who love you. But how can one love those who openly and insidiously seek to defeat you? Of all people in our history, especially recent history, Luther knew this intimately well during the 1950s and 60s as he sought to bring social change to segregation. He knew this well, and yet he demonstrated, I think, as best as he could to love his enemies. But this reality is coming upon us. I hope you know that. That as our culture rapidly changes to embrace values that are antithetical to our faith, we will increasingly face anger, frustration, animosity to the values that we hold so dear. 
Many of us know this with, the way, with simply the way that gender is being defined. We're being attacked. The ways that we hold truth, truth is being attacked. And the question is, in the midst of this hostility, how will we respond? Anger seems to be the most logical choice. This is, after all, what is proposed before us. This is how the world does its business. You fight anger with anger. And yet, we give little thought to what such a reaction causes. Shortly after saying what he said about the need to love our enemies, and, and Luther King says this, the command to love one's enemy is an absolute necessity for our survival. The answer to the animosity that we will experience, that we might already experience, is love. Love is the way. But in order for us to love our enemies, we're going to have to deal with our anger. And Proverbs makes it abundantly clear that those who are slow to anger are considered wise. If you consider the first three verses that I, I've printed for you in the bulletin, you'll see this connection between being slow to anger and wisdom. Look at that, for, verse 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, than those who take great cities. Good sense makes one slow to anger. You can hear the consistent theme. Those who are slow to anger are great in understanding, are better than the mighty, have good sense. And if you know anything about the book of Proverbs, essentially what, what Solomon is saying is this. Those who are slow to anger are wise. We don't respond to, to animosity with anger. We do it slow to anger. And we do it with wisdom. But how in the world are we going to get there? Well, I think you can see good sense, a good sense, good understanding. There has to be an understanding of what anger is. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to look deeper at anger to explore it, that we might have a better understanding so that we might be wise in the face of great adversity and therefore be able to love our enemies as our Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us. So we're going to be looking at four different aspects of anger. We're going to look at the definition of anger. We're going to look at the depth of anger. We're going to look at the destruction of anger. And finally, we're going to look at the diffusing of anger. So what is anger after all? First, the definition of anger. The modern Anglican theologian Os Guinness defines anger this way. Anger is the emotional response to a sense of impotence in the face of entitlement or self-pity. Now that's a big statement, but I want to repeat it again because it is really good. Anger is the emotional response to a sense of impotence in the face of entitlement or self-pity. Put this way. Anger is what you feel when you're powerless and picked on, either by others or yourself. Counselors and theologians are right when they say that anger is not a primary emotion, but rather a secondary one. It's the check engine light of our soul. Like, like the check engine light of your car, it reveals something, that something is wrong. It's a messenger. Anger is a messenger. It's not a problem. The problem actually lies within the engine. So we have to see first that anger is neither right or wrong, that we can be filled with righteous anger at the injustice done to us or that of a neighbor or nation. 
This anger is not wrong. This is why I think it's so important for us to see from the outset that Solomon is very specific in choosing the words slow to anger rather than avoiding anger. The one who is not angry, that's not the one that has great understanding. It's the one who is slow to anger. So rightly understood, anger is the emotional response to a sense of impotence, the inability to do something in the face of entitlement or self-pity. Anger leads us, therefore, now to something deeper, does it not? Being a secondary, being an emotional response to something that's happened to us, it leads us something deeper. Indeed, that's where we're going to go now. We're going to look at the depth of anger. Anger leads us ultimately to a doorway to much deeper realities, to the engine of our car, the engine of our life, where it reveals problems and situations that perhaps might be too complex. I think it ultimately leads us to two roads in our soul. One is a road of righteousness and justice that leads ultimately to God, and the other is a road that leads primarily to the self. I want to walk us down these two roads as we plumb the depths of our anger. First, our anger ultimately leads us down the road that leads to God. When you or I feel angry or burning red, we are clearly frustrated living in the world that we are in. It can happen when a a child sets us off and we don't like the way they're doing it. It it could be someone attacks our children. It could be something that our boss does to us that infuriates us. Something is not right. It sets us off. Simply put, our anger is a response to injustice. A law has been broken, or at least perceived to be broken, and so we get angry. But when we speak of injustice, here's what I want you to see, the depth of this. When we speak of injustice, we're speaking of laws. And when we speak of laws, we're speaking of a lawgiver, to the authority, to a authority, an authority. And this leads us to a deeper question. Who is the authority? What is the basis for the laws that which we're basing our anger on? Biblically speaking, as Christians, we say God is the lawgiver, that he is the authority. So our anger, when rationally pursued, leads us to God, the lawgiver. He's the one that has given us laws. He's the one that defines what is right and what is wrong. When we experience that which is wrong, yes, our emotional response is, ah, this is not right. You see, our anger, when plumbed, leads us to God. Here's a simple question. How do you understand this God? How has this God acted in creation? How does he want us to follow his law today? You, you see how deep our anger can lead us, the, the, the road that it can take us on, these ethical and metaphysical realities that, that are anger. It's deep. This is one road that our anger can take us, but it can take us down another road. And more often than not, this is the road we travel. And our anger takes us down the road that leads to ourselves and ultimately to destruction. In a world that is increasingly godless, anger leads us only to ourselves. That the standard that we believe that is broken is a standard that is set only by ourselves. This is what is happening in determining what is your gender or what is not. You get to choose. God doesn't say that. God says you're a male or a female. 
But if you become the standard to determine if you want to be a male or female, who's the standard? You are. And if you're the standard, and then your anger is based off of yourself, what does that say about you? You're becoming godlike, but you are not God. If you see yourself as a God, and the person next to you sees yourself, themselves as a God, this is ultimately going to lead to destruction. Because standards, when pit against standard, only leads to chaos. You know that, right? So when we plumb the depths of our anger, we ultimately go down to the question of standard. And the two roads that it takes us is either to God or to ourselves. What is the basis of your anger? Is it something that you're just conjuring up in your life that you don't even consider the depths of it? You're just reacting? Because sometimes there's righteous anger. I hope you know that. It is good to be angry at that which God is angry at. It is. If you've been abused, be angry at that. That's not good. But if you're angry at something that you have you know, brought up in your life, realize that you are thinking of yourself as a God and you are not a God. If we take matters into our own hands, if we believe if we take anger to its depth and see ourselves as a standard, inevitably it will lead, thirdly, to the destruction of anger. Proverbs makes this abundantly clear, that anger met with anger destroys. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, Proverbs 15, 18. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression, Proverbs 29, 22. A harsh word stirs up anger, Proverbs 15, 1. It is abundantly clear that Proverbs tells us that anger met with anger will inevitably destroy and ruin. There's no way out of an individual taking matters into their own hands and seeking justice in their own merit in their own standard i've told this story several times before so i forgive me for those that have heard it but it's a, an illustrative story of how i have failed myself in dealing with my anger a uh, few years ago i was walking my kids um, down our street with our dog and i made a foolish decision to walk my dog without the leash my dog will follow me everywhere that i go but on this one particular occasion I was walking my kids and my dog, and a car came around the corner and, like, drafted around the corner. This is a neighborhood, intimate neighborhood. So immediately, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful for my kids. So I take them, and I put them as far away from the road as I possibly could. But my dog doesn't follow me. And the dog is standing in the road, and so I naturally do what, what anyone would do that loves your dog. You just go out into the road, and you hold your hand up, and you say, you know, slow down, slow down. But the people that were driving this car, they slowed down, but they kept inching forward. And then the words came out of their mouth, dude, get your dog out of the road before I run it over. Oh. That's how it's going to be, huh? And they kept coming for me. So I had to get out of the way. Now, the passenger side window was down, and I am hot. I mean, anger is boiling in my mind. You mess with my kids or my dog. I'm coming at you. And this is exactly what happened. And I say this to my shame. I say this to my shame. 
there was probably a 15-year-old kid in the front seat next to the driver. And I was yelling to him, I will rip you out of the car if you don't stop. I will rip you out of the car. Stop the car. And I was, I was this close to ripping the kid out of the car. They stopped. And I go to get my dog. And I come to the, come to the driver's side. And then I go to the, back, the passenger behind the driver's side. And there's a kid holding a gun to my face. I took matters into my own hands. I said anger with anger. And guess what was right in front of my face? A gun. Now, by God's grace, the kid did not pull the trigger, and they immediately drove away. But this is an illustrative point of what happens when we meet anger with anger. It always brings destruction. My friend asked me, how would you have responded differently? Because then certainly there's, there's a sense of which, yes, you had every right to be angry that these kids were coming at your dog. I had every right. And I said to him, I would not have said, I will rip you out of the car. That's when I, I went from a righteous anger to an unrighteous one. And when I went there, that's what provoked the gun being pulled on me. See, what happens with anger is when anger is met with anger, <laughs> destruction comes. As Christians, if destruction is our end, if anger is how we meet anger, there is no hope for this world. We must love our enemies. We must control our anger. We must be slow to anger. And this leads us to the last aspect of anger that I want to discuss this morning, which is the diffusing of anger. How in the world, as Christians who get picked on, who get pushed around, how is it that we love our enemies rather than respond in the ways of the world? How? There's got to be another way. Indeed, my friends, there is another way. It is a two-step process to diffuse our anger. And the first step in diffusing our anger is approaching God. In approaching God, we come to recognize that we are dealing with a great lawgiver and judge. That before him, we have sinned. He sees these faults and it incites his righteous anger. We have robbed God of his glory and wounded the very people who were made in his image. We have to see that we, ourselves, have done it to him in approaching him. And we have to recognize this. And we have to, in essence, fall on our knees pleading his mercy through confession of sins. That is the first step. That if there is a God, and indeed there is a God, that we stand before him in need of his mercy because of our faults towards him. And we have to approach him this way. But secondly, not just acknowledging our own faults, we have to know that God himself is indeed slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We recite that assurance of pardon quite regularly. Psalm 103. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you know that God himself, in light of your faults, is indeed slow to anger? Is abounding in love 
towards his enemies. You know that, right? And the way that he extends that love towards you and me is through one word, forgiveness. Forgiveness. God doesn't look at our faults and say, no big deal, you're good to go. If he were to do this, this would not be just. No, he looks at our faults and he says, I am going to pay for your faults and your sins with my own blood. God himself, who knew no faults, gave himself up for us as an atonement for our faults in the person of Jesus. His life for our life so that we can stand before God rightly, not because of what we've done or what we left undone, but because of the forgiveness that God extends to us through the blood of Jesus as the payment for those faults. In this, we see that justice is done on our behalf through God himself. And we as Christians, we gratefully receive this forgiveness. Have you received the very forgiveness that the God who is slow to anger and abounding in love extends to you through Jesus? If you have not received this forgiveness, it is yours now. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You want to know the key to diffusing anger? It's receiving this forgiveness. And that begins with going to God, acknowledging your faults, and through Jesus Christ, receiving it. Do you want to know how you know you've had your own sins forgiven? You want to know? You extend that same forgiveness to your enemies. In seminary, this, this hit me profoundly when we were studying the Lord's Prayer. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I had this thought, the only place that I ever see forgiveness really extended, and, and that's being a bit hyperbolic, I don't mean that, but like the primary place that I see forgiveness really extended is with little kids. Like where in the church is there forgiveness of sins? Jesus makes it a part of his main prayer to, to extend forgiveness towards one another. It's, it's a big part of it, and yet I never see it. I've never, I, I remember thinking, I've never experienced someone coming to me and saying, I forgive you. Never. Why? Because I think people in the church don't grasp the offense that they've had against God, but also the grace that they've experienced in the forgiveness of God. And having not experienced it, they hold grudges. God has given us forgiveness. We have, we have, we have robbed God of his glory, and yet he is merciful and gracious to us. Why don't we do that to others? Because we've never experienced it ourselves. The way to diffuse our anger is to be go to God and experience his diffusing of anger and experiencing that we can then do it to others. Oh, friends, the only way that you're ever going to be slow to anger is if you experience the God who is slow to anger with you. And then you do it to others. I mean, it falls in line with our mission statement to be loved in love, does it not? We have to experience the forgiveness of God to then give that forgiveness to those around us. And this is the challenge that we all face right now. 
as we take stands for things that we hold true and valuable, the world might look at us and call us fools, bigots, hard-headed people. But we say we stand on the standard of God and we don't stand more righteous than you. We stand because of his grace, but we still hold to this because if we lose the standard, we lose God. We don't lose God. We stand with him for his forgiveness and we extend that same forgiveness to our enemies. A, a, a few years ago, I, I read a book um, by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It was made into a movie called Team of Rivals. I don't know if you saw this, but it, it encounters um, the United States around 1860. In particular, it, it, it encounters Abraham Lincoln in his rise to becoming president. And it captures a very hostile um, election season. And one man, man in particular named Stanton was a, <laughs> he was kind of, um, kind of the way that we are today politically. I mean, just going after Abraham Lincoln with all that he has, tr- defaming his character, even making fun of the way that Abraham Lincoln looked. I mean, this is what he would do in this political season. Of course, we know what happens. Abraham Lincoln comes to power, and as he's putting together his cabinet, he, he comes to the last um, spot in his cabinet, which is the Secretary of Defense, a pretty important position in this season. And Lincoln looked at all the people that he had to, to see and, and use for this particular position. And do you know what he came to? He said, I actually think Stanton's pretty good for this position. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to put Stanton in this position. And so he did against his advisors' (laughs) advice. Of course, we know what happens in 1865. Lincoln is killed. But you know what Stanton said in 1865? Here's perhaps the most profound man that I've ever come into contact with. Maybe the greatest man who's ever lived. Why? Because Abraham Lincoln forgave him. And he extended love. He didn't meet anger with anger. He met anger with love, and it changed him. The only way that we're going to be able to (laughs) save our world and society, the only hope outside of Jesus Christ, the light of the world is what? The church. And it is a church that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, following in the way of our Savior. My friends, we are called to love our enemies. And a big part of that is indeed being slow to anger. Being wise in accordance to the book of Proverbs. Of course, this comes. This comes in receiving the forgiveness of God and extending to others. May God do this in our church and in our community. And may the light of the gospel shine brightly in our community because we having received the forgiveness of God, extend that same forgiveness to our enemies. Would you pray with me? God, I am um, grateful to be reminded of the great forgiveness that you have extended to us. It is a forgiveness which is extended to us at a great cost, at the cost of your son, through the suffering of him on the cross through the being separated from you on that horrible evening. 
an evening which we call good. But Lord, it is a good gift to us indeed. I ask, O oh Lord, that you would humble all of us. Humble us to where we can acknowledge and receive the forgiveness that you extend to us. That we in turn might extend that same forgiveness to our enemies. This indeed is the way of the gospel. It is upside down, but it is the power that can transform a hard-hearted sinner into a saint.